Deathbringer, Book One of the Shadows of the Gods series. Story by M.S. Borland. Narrated by Claire Coyle. Chapter One Gods and Mortals. It was very early in the morning when the black ship arrived in Akros, cloaked in the heavy darkness that precedes the dawn. Midnight had passed some hours before, and the waxing moon was nearing the western edge of the blue-black sky over the harbor. The dark-haired woman had hidden herself in the hold of the boat while the captain paid the portis guard to let his ship enter the port without the usual inspection and custom tallies. It had been common practice in Akros for many years and aroused no suspicion. Pay off the harbor guards and they would let you go about your business in peace, no matter what that business might be. Once they pulled alongside the dock, the passenger pressed a small cloth sack into the captain's palm. The rest of the stones, as promised, she said, then leapt lightly over the side of the boat onto the stone dock. She walked a few paces along the edge of the water, then turned down a narrow side street and disappeared from sight. It was strange to be back, she thought, back in this place that she loved and hated and had never wanted to see again. But despite the many other regrettable things she had done in her life, never once had she broken an oath, and she was not going to start now, even if it meant her death, which, she reflected, it certainly might. Arriving in Akros unseen was one thing. Leaving again would be an entirely different matter. But for now, the more pressing problem was finding a safe place to rest and change before taking the path up to the atria with the morning light. She had known this part of the harbor district well, but it had changed in her years away, and she felt less than hopeful that the inn she wanted would be as she remembered it. The narrow streets were laid out in the same lopsided grid with the same wayposts, but in the darkness they gave off a strong smell and an evil feel that she had not expected. I need a room for the rest of tonight, maybe a few nights more, the dark-haired woman said in flat, unaccented agarai the common tongue of trade and commerce in those days. The Keepa woman barely glanced at her newly arrived guest. Well, and which is it, she asked. Things will get crowded down here from tomorrow on, the old king being dead. Maybe you didn't know. You want a room? You pay for all the nights now, in advance. The stranger nodded. Four nights then, including what's left of this one. She pushed a small cloth sack into the Keepa's hand. The woman dumped the contents into her rough, coppery palm, and quickly sized the stones. Too much, she thought at first. That usually meant trouble. She should tell this girl to go. But then again, she reflected, it was about to be a festival week, which meant rooms near the harbor would be in high demand, and she could charge whatever she wanted. It was a fair price, really, for a festival week. She nodded and slipped the stones back into the pouch. Neovi! She screeched over her shoulder. The girl will show you your room and a bath, the keeper woman said, turning toward her back room without a parting glance. It wasn't good manners to stare, not once you had taken the stones. Her mother had taught her that. But that had been in the better years of Akros, when welcoming foreign guests was a less dangerous business and making friendly conversation, like asking where they'd been and what they were selling and where they were headed next, wasn't such a sure way to get yourself stabbed in the dark. Simpler times, she thought, tucking the cloth pouch away in her bosom, but less profitable. In the meantime, 
a small girl of about ten summers had appeared noiselessly at the dark-haired woman's side. We has lots of rooms open, Neovi said, eyes cast downward, her timid voice bouncing off the packed clay of the floor. You wants nearer the bath or the stairs? The young woman felt a rush of pity and anger stir inside her. The girl was thin enough to be called malnourished, underdressed for the chill night with dirty bare feet. Her bronze-brown hair was unwashed. Bruises, old and new, ran up and down her bare limbs. I just need somewhere safe where I can rest a while, the woman said. The low musical timbre of her voice seemed to calm the child's nerves, and Neovi nodded, though her face was still pointed toward the floor. I'll show you my favorite room, she said as she led the way up a set of steep, roughly plastered stairs. You can just see the atria from the window if you knows where to look. Bath's in the back, she said. It don't take long to heat the water. You can just tell me and I'll get it ready for you. Neovi glanced cautiously up at the woman from under startlingly lovely long lashes. Maybe you want a bath now? I need it, the woman admitted with a laugh as the Keepa girl opened the door of the small room on the top floor of the inn at the rear of the stairs. Neovi, could you do me a favor? She asked. I need you to buy a few things for me in the market as soon as it gets light. I'll give you the stones for them, don't worry. I need a blue cloak, same color as the portis guards wear, and a pair of good leather sandals. Can you do that for me? The girl nodded, then darted over to the window, quick as a small bird. Look, here's where you can see the atria. When the sun rises, you can see the roofs. It's the most beautiful place in Akros, she sighed. There's gardens and fountains and horses and the people in the high houses wear the most beautiful clothes. All the colors of the sky and the sea. Have you ever been inside the atria, Neovi? The woman asked. The girl stepped back from the window, startled by the question. Why, she asked almost angrily, I'm only a filthy keeper brat, she said, tucking her hands behind her in shame. My hands are dirty, too, the young woman said, stretching them out toward the girl, palms down so that she could see the streaks of grime that had settled into the creases of her knuckles and around the edges of her nail beds. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It means that you know how to do a day's work, that you can take care of yourself. Neovi frowned. But you're rich. I saw the stones you gave the keepa. The woman shook her head. Don't worry about the stones. Try to forget that you ever saw them. You'll have to forget me, too, as soon as I'm gone. Why? Neovi asked, fear creeping into her voice. Not your worry, the woman said, the full weight of her weariness settling in on her. The note of finality in her voice signaled, not unkindly, that the conversation was over. How about that bath? The dark-haired woman studied her reflection on the surface of the stone bathing basin for a long moment before stepping into the water. <laughs> they would never recognize me like this, she thought with a wry smile, surveying the coal around her dark eyes and the intricate clay-bound braids in her hair. Seeing this image of herself always made her feel powerful, fearless, protected. It was an identity that had served as its own kind of armor for many years. And now, 
it's time to wash her away, she thought, and her smile faded. She sat in the bath for as long as she felt was safe, watching the water around her knees run red and black with clay and coal, thinking that now would be the time to cry if she was going to. But the tears never came. She stretched her right arm up behind her back and ran her hand lightly over the raised marks between her shoulder blades. Old as the scars were, hot water still turned them red and swollen. You wear my mark upon you, and if you ever run from me, I will put a price on your head so great that nowhere on the four seas will be safe for you. Well, he had kept that promise, the young woman reflected as she brushed her fingertips over the scars. No matter. No one would see them underneath the dark cloth of her dress. They were easy enough to hide if you took care, and he had left the rest of her unmarked. Returning to her room after her bath, the dark-haired woman twisted the door latch and picked up the small clay oil lamp to examine her lodgings. She checked the height of the window, shook the lock on the door, scanned the cracks in the plaster for hidden doors or cabinets, moved the low wooden bed frame away from the wall to inspect the floor beneath it. Paranoia had saved her life more than once. Now, these measures simply seemed like common sense. Finally satisfied, she dumped her leather traveling bag upside down on the bed and began laying out the contents with a critical look on her face. The wool of the gray dress she had bought in Piraeus before boarding the black Varkas ship felt flimsy and cheap between her fingers, and she could hardly stand to look at it. Even with a wide belt of good leather at her waist, she would look like a merchant wife or a Kella woman. She laughed and threw the garment back onto the bed. Whatever she wore, it wouldn't earn her welcome here. So what did it matter? She sat down on the edge of the bed and began to comb out the waves of her wine-dark hair. When her hair was combed and braided, she placed her traveling clothes back in her bag, alongside her filthy sandals and a small packet of clay and coal. The bronze-bladed knife in the goat leather sheath she took with her. She laid her stained brown cloak in front of the door and curled up on the floor, pulling the fur-lined garment over her so that it served as both bed and blanket. Only once she had laid down and closed her eyes, knife across her chest, did she allow herself to acknowledge that she was tired, deep in her very bones. She had barely slept during the voyage from Piraeus though most of the Varkas called their ships home and their passengers were protected by the guest rights of Zeus himself. She had thought it better not to take the risk. Now, sleep might find her. Or not. She never knew. It was enough to be alone in a quiet room, behind a locked door, still warm from a bath. These were the good moments in her life, and she had learned to appreciate them whenever they presented themselves. It was probably going to be a terrible day, she thought with a yawn. No use worrying about it now. Better to enjoy the quiet before the coming of the storm. But the quiet did not last. The dark-haired woman did not know how long she had slept when a breath of wind above her head drew her into wakefulness. The room was pitch black, and the air around her was deathly cold. And she knew at once that she was not alone. Her cloak had been pulled away. Chill air seeped in around her, 
over her bare skin. A brittle fingernail, sharp and cold as a shard of ice, traced the lines of the scars that disfigured her back. She pressed her cheek deeper into the folds of the wool beneath her face and tried to quiet the shrieking fear inside her. It's only a shade, she told herself silently. Only a shade, Brielle, her visitor asked, speaking at last. The woman felt the icy finger on her back recoil at once. Do you think so little of me now? You loved me once. Has death changed us so? Brielle kept her eyes closed tight, her face hidden in her cloak, and did not reply. But she knew now who her visitor was. She knew his voice as if it was her own. The next moment, she felt corpse-cold fingers grip the soft flesh beneath her chin and twist her face upward. She opened her eyelids and found a pair of lifeless, empty silver eyes glinting down at her in the darkness. Surely you knew I'd be waiting here for you, Brielle, said the shade. Even death could not sever a bond like ours. Brielle shook her head. I had hoped you would find rest, Ronan. Rest. The shade spat the word back at her like a mouthful of poison. There is no rest for those who die as I did. Violently, without honor. Brielle sat up and tugged her cloak back around her, pulling her knees up to her chest. What do you want from me then? She asked wearily. Why are you here, Ronan? I want to see the face of the woman who sent me to meet death, he said. If I were to haunt your steps all the days of your life, that would be my right. It is the right of all who die murdered. I do not deny it, Brielle said, keeping her eyes fixed on her visitor's eerie silver gaze. But I am not here for you, Ronan. As she rose to her feet, the shade gnashed its teeth and backed away from her in dismay. Brielle heard the angry grinding of his jaw in the darkness above her, though the outline of his face and figure remained hidden in the shadows. You have already disturbed my sleep. Do not test my patience further, she said, a note of warning in her voice. There is no bond of love or even grief between us now. You are only another angry shade, spitting empty curses in the dark. If you have a favor to ask, ask it now. If not, be on your way, horrible Idolin. The shade of Ronan Crisson laughed, then choked on his laughter, gasping for breath before he spoke again. I have seen the mark you wear upon your back, he said. You did not wear such scars on the day you were exiled from Akros. You must have been truly desperate to swear allegiance to one as dark and terrible as Theranos's are, even more desperate still to run from him. I swore no oath to him, Brielle hissed, her voice nearly breaking with rage. Is that why he marked you then? His fire in place of your oath? The shade let out a soft, gurgling laugh. <laughs> he will find you, Brielle. You will never be free of him, not until you too pass through the gates of hell. Brielle let out a bitter laugh. If you know what I am, Ronan, then you know you have no power over me she said, 
You are nothing but a ghost. You cannot curse me. The shade's eyes flickered with malice in the dark. It is no curse, he said. I speak the truth. Surely you, of all mortals, know time is a river, and the dead see all. We will meet again, Brielle, in this world and the other. Some hours later, on that same night, a dark figure stood alone on the steep, rocky beach of a nameless island in the southern sea. He was tall and broad-shouldered, and a great conch shell hung at his waist. His chest was bare as a merman's, and salt water dripped from his beard and the curls of his dark hair. The whites of his eyes shone like pearls as they swept over the ocean. He did not wait there long before a tall woman in silver armor approached him over the rocks. A ship has passed in the night, its sails set for Akros, he said, without turning his face from the sea. The daughter of Kyrian Varkas returns at last to her mother's people and the island of her birth, the woman replied in a low, powerful voice, like the wind before a storm. Your hope is misplaced, Athena, the sea god told her with a cold smile. I have watched her for many years, while your gaze wandered to other lands. She may be an oracle's daughter, but she is no priestess. You stole her mother from me, forced her to break her sacred oath. You are a liar and a cheat, cried Athena, her politeness vanishing in an instant. Your daughters granted Kyrian the reward he had earned in battle, according to the law of justice you gave them, said Poseidon sternly. It matters not, the goddess of war replied proudly. The fires that you drenched will soon burn bright in my temple once more. The sea god held up a hand to command silence as pearl-pale light began to seep over the eastern horizon. Dawn nears, Athena. Tell me, what do you see? The gray-eyed goddess turned her gaze to the south. Kyrian Varkas, lord of the boats they named him, lies dead in Akros. His body is already cold upon the bed. The city sits kingless. The sea wolves come. More than that, I cannot yet see. Chapter 2. Return to Akros At the northern edge of its magnificent rock-ringed harbor, the city of Akros swept up from the water as smoothly and steeply as the sides of a deep bowl rise from the bottom of their basin. Curving along the harbor to both east and west lay the many districts of the famous market, where it was said that anything could be bought or sold as long as the price was right. The marketplace of Akros was a cacophony of sounds, tastes, sights, and smells, for all the cultures of the compass points found representation somewhere in its loud, colorful sprawl. Akros was still a beautiful, terrible place, Brielle thought as she walked between the sweet-smelling stalls of the herb and spice market, moving north toward the atria walls. Alongside inns, brothels, and keller of every price range, Visitors to the market could find metalwork, vessels of stone and clay, spices and fruits, cloth of every fiber, herbs and liquors for both healing and pleasure, tame and exotic animals of all kinds and other wares from across the four seas, brought from Pylos and Paphos, Tarsus and Sidon. 
The place was also crawling with dogfighters, beggars, drunks, cheats, counterfeiters, and pickpockets. Brielle was pleased to discover that she attracted no attention as she passed through the narrow, dusty aisles of the Akros Market. She now looked nothing like the passenger who had arrived on the Varkis ship under cover of nightfall. Before leaving the inn in the harbor district, she had put on her new gray dress and leather sandals and the Mitera blue cloak, and her face was well hidden in the shadow of her hood. Her path took her northward, out of the market district and into the neighborhoods of the Mitera common people. She passed the houses of married harbor guards and of wealthier merchants who could afford to live away from their market stalls. The homes of the poorer guild workers of all types, healers, weavers, potters, metalsmiths, the shared lodgings of foreign carpenters and stoneworkers. North of the commoners' district rose the atria walls, and behind them the upper tiers of the city, which had been built along a series of natural outcroppings in the northern cliffs, terraces so even and well-situated that they seemed to have been smoothed by the hands of giants. Beyond its bronze-bound gates and ashlar masonry walls, the atria's greatest strength was its position. It was set into the line of cliffs that protected the city of Akros from the north, and which reached out east and west to encircle its harbor like two stone arms. Although it was always referred to singularly, the atria was not actually a building, or even a palace. It was a sort of warren, or hive, an immense stone and plaster maze of many individual buildings all housed inside the massive stone wall that originated from the cliffs themselves. The finest and most richly constructed rooms belonged to the atria's upper level, which had been finished some thirty years earlier. But expansion and development and renovation had continued steadily inside the circumference of the atria walls in the years since. From the earliest days, the common people of Akros had always referred to the buildings set into the cliffs above the harbor as the High Houses. The name lingered with a kind of prophetic persistence. In time, the heads of the High Houses became responsible for all important aspects of religion, politics, and commerce in Akros. Protected by the thick stone walls of the atria, the houses of the healers, weavers, metalsmiths, stoneworkers, and potters had prospered and expanded their power. Timber imported from Kypros and the land of Keftiu, and stone quarried from nearby Peros and Naxos, contributed to structures of increasing height and complexity, houses of multiple stories and halls whose ceilings were vaulted like the heavens. The result was a dense and diverse assortment of homes and workshops, temples and storerooms, courtyards and administrative offices, all arranged around the large, many-columned hall and massive green garden on the highest terrace. The atria's main gates, Euros and Zephyros, named to honor the wind gods of the east and west, faced south and looked down over the market and the harbor. The eastern half of the atria was occupied by the high houses, the ruling families of Akros and their households. The western gate opened onto the court of guards, from which ascended a set of stone steps, leading to the highest terrace and the greatest hall. At the western edge of the atria, overlooking the court of the guards, stood the arsena, home to the keepers of order in both harbor and market. It was a place where thieves forfeited hands. Debtors were sold in chains, 
murderers were executed, and smugglers whipped. The atria was not an easy place for an outsider to enter, especially unseen. Although Brielle was not, in fact, an outsider, she avoided the great gates and slipped eastward in the growing shadow beneath the atria walls. She knew there had once been a breach in the eastern wall several levels above the main gate, and it was this door that she sought out. She found it just as she remembered, a small opening covered by a large piece of mildewed goat leather, too small for any grown man to enter. It was a watercourse that had been cut through the rock, which led down from, or up to, depending on how you chose to see it, the garden of the highest terrace within the atria. She had discovered the drainage way when she was still a child, and the place looked more like a water slide than a death trap. The rocky chute was narrow, steep and slippery, especially at the higher level, and there was the ever-present threat that the sluice above might be opened, washing away your footing and flushing you downward in a flood of filthy water. Brielle knew it was her only option for making her way into the atria without being discovered. It would be a tight squeeze, but her frame hadn't changed much since her teenage years. If anything, she was stronger, more flexible. She slipped off her sandals, tied the thongs, and draped them over the back of her neck, praying they wouldn't tangle and choke her. She knew she would never make it all the way up to the garden unless she was barefoot. She tugged up the hem of her dress and knotted it tightly above her knees. The cloak would be filthy by the time she made it to the top, if she made it to the top, but it should keep the rest of her clean and dry enough until then. Just as she lifted the wooden door over the drainage way, her ears caught a sound like rushing wind. She dropped the gate and tore off down along the wall as fast as she could. She had barely made it out of range when a torrent of brown water dumped out of the sluiceway, flooding the dirt path and running off onto the level below. After the water subsided, she returned to stare at the gate, dabbing her toes in the pale brown mud beneath her feet. Drowning in a drainpipe was not high on her list of ways to die. Just as she reached forward and pushed the leather cover to one side to begin her climb, Brielle heard a pair of rough voices. They were arguing in Maitera, the local dialect of Akros, and they were coming closer by the second. Brielle cursed under her breath and glanced wildly around for a place to hide. The drainage chute was too steep and narrow to force her whole body into at once, and the roadway on which she stood was cut into the side of a cliff. At its edge, the ground broke off into a straight drop of at least five meters. She'd be certain to break her legs, or worse, if she tried to escape that way. She was trapped between a massive stone wall on her right and a bone-shattering drop on her left. The voices were growing louder with each passing second, though their owners were still hidden by the curvature of the atria wall. Brielle turned back toward the drainage chute in panic. If she dislocated one of her shoulders, maybe. But it was too late. She felt a pair of rough hands grab her from behind and throw her viciously back against the stones of the atria wall. A pair of blue-cloaked portis guards leered down at her. One kept her shoulders pinned against the masonry, while the other ripped her hood back from her hair and bent toward her, bringing his face close enough to hers that she nearly gagged at the reek of his breath. 
What do you think we gots here? The foul-smelling guardsman asked, looking up at his friend with an unpleasant smile. She can't be up to no good, the taller blue cloak agreed, switching to the common tongue to be sure their captive understood. He looked at Brielle sternly. This here roadway is restricted by order of the Portis Guard. You're trespassing. I didn't know, Brielle wailed in a heavily accented agarai. I'm a stranger here, lost mine way. I was only looking for the nice spices, good sirs. Do has pity on a poor traveler. The guardsmen grinned at each other, and then the soldier who held Brielle's shoulders against the wall jerked her forward between them. You reckon she's a thief, spy, or a common whore? he asked his companion. Only one way to find out, the other said with a shrug. Find her hands and bring her along to the arsena. Brielle remained stiff and silent as the guards knotted a rope as tightly around her wrists as it would go, then pulled a hood of scratchy, fibrous cloth over her head to obscure her vision. She had considered reaching for the bronze-bladed knife under her cloak, then decided against it. The less attention she attracted, the better. Besides, bloodshed before breakfast always meant a difficult day ahead. The stink of sweat and the shifting shadow patterns told her that the taller guard walked in front of her. The other, nastier soldier, marched behind, prodding her body needlessly until her temper began to fray. Still, she said nothing. You think you're too pretty to talk to me, the guard asked, irritated by his prisoner's silence. That's fine. You'll talk to the whip. They always do. A shudder tore through Brielle's frame at the thought. She felt her knees grow weak and her next step faltered, so that she nearly lost her footing on the rocky ground. Her guard let out a guttural laugh, and then he brought his mouth close beside her hooded face, lowering his voice. And if the captain is in a good mood today, he added, he might just let us take a crack or two at you beforehand for sport. When the guards finally removed her hood, Brielle found that she was standing in a dimly lit room constructed of large, well-dressed stones. An outer chamber of the arsena, she guessed, judging by the nearby noise of soldier banter and weapons clatter that had drifted in from the court of guards. At least her guards had done her the favor of escorting her inside the atria wall, Brielle told herself, and at least she had been spared the indignity of climbing up a sewage drain. The captain of the watch stared coldly at the prisoner who stood before him. For a moment, Brielle thought she saw a question, a hint of recognition flicker in the man's eyes, just before he dismissed it with a blink and a jerk of his head. Of course, it was impossible, she reminded herself, resisting the urge to smile. Everyone in Akros knew that the daughter of Kyrian Varkas was dead, drowned in the wine-dark sea some five years ago now. Who are you and what's your business in Akros? The captain asked in crisp agarai. Brielle kept her mouth pressed firmly shut. The truth wouldn't serve her. Not now, not here. Says she's a stranger visiting the spice market, the taller guard volunteered. But we found her up near the east wall, alone. Likes she was looking for something, or someone. The captain looked back at his prisoner and nodded. You don't want to talk to me? Very well. You can tell your truth to the whipping post. He motioned to the guardsman. Take her down to the court of the guards. Strip her down if you like the look of her. 
It's been a while since we've had a woman for a show. Ten lashes should do it. Then you can have what's left of her. Throw her in the common cell when you're done, in case one of the brothels comes looking for her. Brielle stared at the captain in disbelief as her guards tightened their grips on her arms and began to drag her toward the sunlit doorway that led to the court of the guards. At last, real panic exploded inside her chest, stealing her breath. She was more than familiar with the interrogation methods of the Portis Guard. First, they would strip her down, and they would bind her wrists to the bronze hook at the top of the whipping column, high above her head. Then, they would beat her until she screamed for mercy, until she confessed to whatever crime they had chosen for her. But there would be no mercy for her, not once they laid eyes on the markings on her back. They might not send word to Thranos in the hopes of claiming the price on her head, but they would certainly show her a spy's death, keep her lingering in excruciating pain on the boundary line of life as long as they could hold her there. Just as the two soldiers began to drag Brielle toward the court of the guards, a figure appeared in the doorway, dimming the sun, blocking their path. The stranger was hooded and cloaked, slim but tall, and his presence communicated certain authority. He removed his hood as he stepped into the chamber, revealing a young, well-formed face and a head of dark, close-cropped curling hair. He passed the guards and their prisoner without a glance, and approached the captain of the watch, never pausing to bow or show any sign of respect. I bring a word from the one who watches, said the messenger. His eyes and ears perceive all. Your judgment has provoked his displeasure. No whip or club will touch this woman, he gestured toward the prisoner. She is to be escorted immediately to the Great Hall, to be questioned by Lord Damon, commander of the Portis Guard. The one who watches has spoken. The captain nodded, his throat working visibly at the knot of fear that had formed there. The one who watches has been heard. It will be done, he said hoarsely. He motioned to the two blue-cloaked soldiers. You heard the message, he said. Take her up to the Great Hall at once. The messenger nodded and raised his hood, coating his face once more in shadow then turned back to the doorway without a word. But ever afterwards, whenever Brielle told the story of her arrest in Akros, she always swore that the mysterious young man had winked at her from beneath his hood as he passed by. Towering over the center of the Atria Garden, the Great Hall was supported by massive timbers set into carved stone bases around the perimeter of the room. A wide area of the ceiling was left open to the sky to vent smoke and embers from the central hearth. At the head of the many-columned hall, a woman was seated on the floor before an empty stone chair, crying. She had deep golden hair and green eyes, and even the tears flowing from her eyes did not mar the extraordinary beauty of her face. Beside her stood a young man in fine leather armor and a sea-blue cloak. His hand rested on her shoulder in a gesture of comfort. As Brielle entered the hall, escorted by the pair of harbor guards, the blue-cloaked soldier drew his sword. The woman beside him rose to her feet, her face pale as if she had seen a ghost. Brielle, she gasped. How? 
You were supposed to be dead. I expect no welcome from your house, Crissa, said Brielle, holding up her hand. She looked at the soldier. You can put away the sword, Damon. I carry no weapons and no ill will toward either of you. I imagine I would feel much the same if I stood in your place. How dare you set foot in this place, Crissa demanded, her shock now transformed to wrath. I dare to answer the summons of our gods, Crissa, said Brielle. Word came to me that my father lay dead in Akros, though I do not think you are the one who sent it. You are a murderer and an oath-breaker, and you should not have come, said Crissa. I swore no oath to Kirion, Brielle said coldly, and as for murder, I have paid for that crime a hundred times since, in ways you could never imagine, she paused. Take comfort in this, Crissa. I am not here to take anything else from you, even that which has always belonged to me, by blood and birth. Chris's face hardened with rage, but it was mixed with fear. You should be dead, she cried. I wish you had really drowned that day, when we received word that your ship had been attacked and burned. To her amazement, Brielle laughed, as if the thought of death by drowning amused her. Sometimes so do I, she said but it does not seem to be my fate to die in the sea. She paused and changed the subject to more practical matters. You should send word to the other high houses that I have returned for Kyrian's death rites. I trust you've made all necessary preparations. Yes, Chrysa said coldly. A house for Kyrian has been opened and perfumed in the city of the dead. It is a noble resting place, fitting to honor his name and his deeds in the world of the living. Brielle shook her head. No. My father wanted his body given to the gods in fire, according to the tradition of his own people, not laid in the cold stone of the Mytera. A funeral pyre has not been lit in the atria since... Chrysa sputtered with rage. Don't lecture me about the history of Akros, Brielle bit back, her face darkening with wrath. I will convene the council. Chrysa said desperately, Lord Balin, the heads of the high houses, they will never allow this. But her voice had risen to a shrill, fearful register that robbed her words of their power and made Brielle smile. Kyrian's daughter looked up through the light well in the ceiling above her and into the bright blue rectangle of sky. A gull wheeled overhead, screeched, then turned and veered out of her sight. Brielle sighed. She had hoped it would not come to this. She fixed her dark eyes on the woman on the stone steps before her. Crissa. Crissa, she said, have you forgotten the laws of Akros? I am Kyrian's oldest child. There is no other to sing safe passage for his shade. Until the death rites are completed, his right to rule rests with me. Brielle paused. I will give my father's body to the gods in the Varkas way, even if I have to burn the Atria along with him, for even that would be his right. Damon, the blue-cloaked soldier, stirred restlessly beside his mother. Brielle, he said in a low voice, you do not mean that. You dare threaten me with fire? Chrissa gasped. You are as mad as your mother before you. 
Brielle's eyes narrowed. My mother is long dead. Leave her to rest in peace. Chrissa stood staring, speechless. Then she pointed a thin, shaky finger at the dark-haired woman in the center of the hall. Our laws give you sanctuary here for three days, Brielle. No more. If I find you still in Akros on the fourth day, you will not live to see the fifth. I will see you cut into pieces, and I will feed your body to the sea. Even that would be too kind a death for you. Brielle nodded. I am not afraid of you, Krissa, but I do pity you, so I will let the insult pass. Now, here is my message to the High Houses and the Atria Court. Brielle Zandrin, daughter of Kyrian Varkas, has returned to honor her father and sing safe passage for his shade. His body will be given to the gods in fire in the way of his people. His pyre will be lit at sunset on the third day. You are summoned to the death rites of Kyrian, lord of Akros, to honor his passing from this world. She paused. Go, deliver my message, Lady Krissa. You are dismissed. Damon Crisson let out a low, nervous laugh once his mother had swept out of the great hall, leaving him alone with Brielle. Kyrian's daughter turned away from him toward the empty stone chair that had once belonged to her father. The years have not muted your hatred for each other, Damon ventured. Brielle turned toward the young Mytira soldier with deep contempt on her face. I told you to put the fucking sword away, Damon. Even if you do want to kill me, you cannot do it until the death rites are completed. He sheathed his sword and stepped toward her. It's been five years, Brielle, he said in a low voice. I never thought I would see you again. Brielle met his glance without expression. That makes it sound like you spent time wondering. How could I not? He asked. I suppose you want me dead, too, she said. Damon shook his head. I wanted you to be mine, Brielle. Do you think anything could make me forget that? As I recall, no one ever asked my opinion about that arrangement, she said dryly. Yes, but your preference for my older brother did turn out to be ill-fated in the end, Damon murmured in a low voice beside her ear. Brielle turned away and moved between the columns of the hall, out to the garden. <laughs> That's more cold-hearted than I remember you being capable of, Damon, she said with a short laugh. I would have righted my brother's wrongs. I wish you had given me the chance. Brielle shook her head. Spare me the pretty words, Damon. I know where your loyalty lies. My mother is too cunning for needless hate, Brielle. You took something very precious from her. She will never forgive you for that. Brielle found her anger cooling into a deep and bitter sadness at the memory. It was not Damon's fault that Kyrian had preferred Ronan, that everyone had always preferred Ronan. It was not Damon's fault that his older brother was the one who had died that day, even though they both knew that if he had been just a bit faster, a bit angrier, it could have been him. Just now, you sounded like a queen returning to claim her inheritance, 
Damon's voice pulled Brielle back to the present. Do you intend to fight for Kyrian's seat? He asked. Ryan is not yet come of age, and the heads of the high houses would have no choice but to swear. Brielle looked down over the bow-shaped city and bustling market, then away to the mouth of the rock-ringed harbor in the south. Ah, that old law. That old lie. Fight or swear. She shook her head. I will sing for Kyrian and swear to Ryan, and when I leave Akros, this time I will not return. Just then, a boy of about twelve summers darted out onto the terrace, coming to a sharp halt once he caught sight of the couple standing at the edge of the garden. Brielle, he called. Is it really you? They said... You've grown, Brielle said softly, looking at him in awe as he came to stand beside her. Do you remember me? The boy nodded, jutting out his chin proudly as he asked, Our father is dead. Are you come to honor him? Yes, said Brielle. I am here to sing for him if you will allow it. For you will be Lord of Akros, Ryan, now that he is gone. Will you let me sing safe passage for Kyrian's shade? Ryan nodded again, and Brielle smiled at the imperiousness of the gesture. For all the traces of the child still in him, she could see already the lines and gestures of the man he would become in time. Tall and proud and handsome as his dead father, she thought sadly. Then a great cry went up from the city below them, and they moved to the edge of the terrace to see a pair of black ships at the entrance of the Akros Harbor. The Varkas, Damon said grimly. Who? Ryan asked. Brielle turned to her younger brother. They are the kinsmen of Kirion, come to honor their dead. They are the lords of the boats, the greatest race of shipbuilders and sea traders our world has ever known. The arrival of the Varkas fleet was like the descent of eagles upon the currents of the wind. So swift and numerous were the sails of their dark ships as they swept into the harbor of Akros, row on row, in the brightness of the noon sun. They are sea wolves, mercenaries, and smugglers with no god but the ocean and no true home but their ships, Damon said with a frown. Displeasure glowed in Brielle's dark eyes. Have you forgotten that the blood of the Varkas runs in my veins and Ryan's as well? she demanded. Damon flushed angrily. I have not forgotten my history. Never before the coming of Kyrian did the ships of the Varkas find welcome in our harbor. Never before the coming of Kyrian was there much in Akros worth buying, said Brielle. The wealth and power of this place are entirely his doing. There are some who would dispute that version of events, Damon replied. Some who say that Kyrian brought us only the filth and greed of his people. <laughs> I dare you to say that to a Varkas captain face to face and see what happens, Brielle said, as Damon turned away from her in disgust. What would happen? Ryan asked, tugging at Brielle's wrist, his green eyes wide with amazement. Brielle smiled at him. He's so old now, and his eyes are so green, she realized, her throat tightening at the thought. What are the Varkas like? Ryan's voice tore Brielle out of her thoughts. Tall and dark and barbaric, Damon replied, and you need have nothing to do with them. Brielle frowned. 
They are great lords of the sea, Ryan, and we will welcome them as such, she turned toward Damon. Send a message down to the harbor to the commander of the Varkas fleet. Tell him we will greet him and his captains on the steps of the Atria just before sunset, once their full number has made port. And tell your mother I expect her to join me there to welcome our guests. Damon opened his mouth to respond, but Brielle cut him off. Consider that an order, Commander. I don't care to discuss this with you further. You're dismissed. Damon's face hardened as if he had been slapped. Then he bent into a slight, stiff bow. As you command, my lady. He paused, then added less formally. I hope you know what you're doing, Brielle. My mother will not be pleased. Crissa would not wish to face the Varkas lords alone, I think, said Brielle. She should see my return to Akros as a gift from the gods. I do not intend to repeat that, Damon called over his shoulder as he turned to go. Then he stopped. Welcome home, Brielle, he said softly. And for the first time in a long time, the daughter of Kyrian Varkas flinched. When Damon had gone, Brielle turned back to her younger brother. Are you prepared for the feast tonight? she asked, rumpling the curls of his almond-brown hair. I don't have to prepare anything, Ryan said, pulling away from Brielle's hand. Damon says I just have to show up properly dressed. I can eat and drink as much as I want, but I should wait until I'm back in my room to vomit. I'm not the one who has to sing and sacrifice to the gods in front of all the high houses. No, not today, Brielle said, looking out at a passing gull. But someday, Ryan, it will be your turn to sing for the dead. Chapter 3 Down in the Harbor The last time that the full strength of the Varkas fleet had descended on Akros was for the marriage feast of her parents. Unhappy occasion that was, Brielle reflected, as she untied her sandals back in her room at the Harbor Inn. The black-painted ships of the Varkas typically traveled in small groupings, two or three or four, sharing supplies and balancing cargo. They were renowned for their speed and their willingness to take on any sort of cargo or any distance of voyage. Everyone knew that the Varkas captains could smuggle whatever you sought to any destination you named as long as the price was right. Brielle had always been proud of being half Varkas, even though the sons and daughters of the Mytiris, her mother's people, had mocked her for it. The year that she had learned to sail, in her eleventh summer, she spent an entire moon pretending to be a young sea wolf, running stolen cargo along dangerous routes back and forth across the width of the Akros Harbor. She had even tried to convince old Jason to let her paint her skiff black, to no avail. Three nights ago, she had sought out a black-bowed ship to bring her to Akros. It had been a good choice. The boat was cleaner than she expected and as fast as she hoped. The captain had asked few questions and paid her even less attention. Then again, no one in their right mind would want anything to do with a southern whore running away from her master. That disguise had served her well over the last year. She hoped to use it again once the funeral rites were over, though Brielle doubted that the convenient Varkas captain who didn't ask questions would still be down in the harbor in three days' time. Just then, Brielle heard scuffling in the hallway outside her door. 
followed by a pair of low, angry voices spitting rapid mitira at each other. She pulled her long knife from the leather bag on the bed and went to the door, cracking it open to peer into the corridor. She burst out laughing at the scene that met her eyes. The bronze-haired Keepa girl had barricaded herself at the top of the stairs and was waving a long-handled wooden dough paddle at a well-dressed young woman with extraordinarily pale skin and striking silver hair, who stood several steps below the landing. You'll not pass, Neovi said wildly, swinging her homely weapon dangerously close to the silver-haired woman's face. Till you say who you are and what you're wanting here. Brielle sheathed her knife and stepped out onto the landing beside the Keepa girl. Peace, Neovi, she said, wrapping her arm around the girl's bony shoulder. Yana is a friend. Brielle's appearance was met with a shriek of joy as the young woman with bright silver hair crashed up the stairs, crying, Brielle, you're home. Shh, Brielle scolded, but the smile on her face contradicted the harshness of her voice. Get in here before you rouse the whole fucking inn. She pulled both visitors into her room and shut the door behind her, hoping the scuffle in the stairwell had not drawn any unwanted attention. Neovi had folded her arms and was staring suspiciously at the pale-skinned woman who had dared to touch her precious guest, while the silver-haired woman studied the little Kipa girl just as carefully. Who's this? Yana asked Brielle, trying not to smile. She's quite the door warden. This is Neovi. She has been very helpful since I arrived in Akros. Neovi, she added, turning to the girl. This is Yana. She is from the Atria. We have known each other for a very long time. Neovi glanced back at Brielle, struck silent by the realization that her guest must be someone quite important, far more important than she had guessed. Brielle set her hand gently on the girl's shoulder. Neovi, she said, can you guard the door outside again so I can change? There's something very important that I have to do tonight and I can't be late. Neovi nodded, picking up her long wooden paddle. She looked back at Yana, still skeptical. If you need my help, you can just yell, she told Brielle. I'll be right outside. Brielle nodded. Thank you, Neovi, she said, and meant it with all her heart. Still picking up strays, I see, Yana said with a wry smile once Neovi had slipped into the passageway to guard the stairs. Brielle dropped wearily onto the narrow bed beside her friend. This one reminds me so much of myself at that age. Skinny and dirty with dishwater hair? asked Yana. Hmm, motherless, angry, and afraid, Brielle replied. But perhaps there is something I can do for her before I go. She paused. How did you find me? Nikos followed you when you left the Great Hall, Yana admitted. Then he sent one of his runners back up to the atria to find me while he kept watch downstairs to make sure you didn't leave the inn before I brought your things. So Akros is as full of hidden eyes and ears as ever. Brielle laughed. <laughs> I can see I'm going to have to be more careful. Yana held out a large package wrapped hurriedly in unbleached linen. I brought you a dress for this evening and some other things from your room. The wards still work, by the way. No one has been in since you left. Or no one but me. 
Brielle took the bundle. Yana, my dearest, you shouldn't have done this. And I'll help you dress while I'm here, Yana interrupted. Brielle shook her head and laid the pack on the bed beside her. I can manage on my own. You should go before anyone sees you. I don't want to put you in danger, too. And tell Nikos I said thank you. For everything. Angry tears welled up in Yana's pale blue eyes, and she shook her head. No, she said, rising to her feet. I won't let them say that you look like a commoner when they see you in the atria tonight. You are still his daughter. And hers. And I won't let you shame yourself. I care what the other houses say, even if you don't. Brielle laughed. It doesn't matter what they say, Yana. I'm not staying in Akros. I'm leaving again for good as soon as the rites are ended. She sighed, seeing the stubbornness etched into her best friend's face. <sighs> but since you're already here, what's in this mysterious package? Yana unfolded the linen and laid its contents out on the narrow bed. If not for the wards on your door, Krissa would certainly have plundered your chambers, she said. But she didn't, which means that you will be the best-clothed woman in the atria tonight. Yana held up a garment made of layers of shimmering blue-black mitira silk. Not even Lady Arachne has silk as fine as this. I was hoping you'd brought my old armor, Brielle frowned. I'd feel safer in a bronze breastplate than in that flimsy silk dress. Yana snorted. There are different ways to fight, she insisted. The high houses will never take you seriously if you don't look the part. It's not vanity, it's politics. Oh, speaking of politics, Brielle said with a sigh. Tell me, what news from the high houses? What are they saying about my return from the dead? Yana looked away. They say you are a deathbringer, no less than your father before you. Are they really so blind that they believe I have come for the Edra? That I returned from exile and death to take Kyrian's place? Brielle let out a short, bitter laugh. <laughs> Fools, all of them. They still cannot see the truth after all these years. Perhaps there is another way, Yana said. Put Ryan in the Edra. Stay and stand beside him as he grows. Help him to become a wiser man than his father. Surely it is not too late for you to make peace with Krissa. Brielle shook her head. Krissa and I will never have peace. If I stay in Akros, she will be certain to poison Ryan against me. Then fight her, Yana said fiercely. Diplomacy and politics be damned. Have you really forgotten who you are, Brielle? She asked, her voice gaining momentum with each syllable. You are the last daughter of the House of the Temple, the daughter of Xandra Theron. There is no son or daughter of the Atria who can stand against you. There never was. She paused to gather her breath. You are strong enough to take Kyrian's place, to fight and take the Edra for your own. The High Houses all know it. Krissa certainly knows it, better than most. I have not forgotten, Yana, Brielle said firmly, and that is why I cannot stay in Akros. Yana shook her head. I don't understand. Help me understand, Brielle. Why can't you stay? Why can't you take what is yours now that Kyrian is dead? Because Yana... Brielle broke off. She began backing away across the room as a cold, sick feeling began crawling over her. 
Brielle, what's wrong? Yana asked, startled by the sudden change of expression on her friend's face. Brielle took several slow, deep breaths and waited for the panic to pass, drawing comfort from the feel of the door pressed hard against her back. Will you swear an oath to me that whatever you see in this room, whatever I show you, you will never share with any living soul? Yes, Yana replied with wide, frightened eyes. Swear, ordered Brielle in a savage voice. I swear to you, Yana said, that any secret you share will go with me to my resting place in the city of the dead. Brielle nodded. Then she turned and let her mantle slip off her shoulders, bearing the scars on her back for a long moment before pulling up the cloak once more with a shiver. Now do you understand? She asked desperately. Yana's face had gone stiff with shock, but she nodded her head. That is the mark of Thranos Asar, she said at last. How did you earn the wrath of the Fire Lord? Do not ask me that if you love me, Brielle said softly. Now you see the danger I have brought with me, and why I cannot stay. He has put a price on your head then, Yana said. Brielle nodded. Any man, woman, or child who sees this mark will know at once who it belongs to and who put it there, just as you did, Yana. Akros is not safe for me. Even if I thought it was, I would not take the risk of bringing the Fire Lord's sails to our horizon. So, after Kyrian's death rites, you will disappear again, silently into the dark, just as you arrived, said Yana. That is the plan, Brielle said dryly, though I will certainly need help from both you and Nikos before the end. She wrapped her arm around her friend's shoulders. I know this is hard, Yana, but trust me, it's better this way. The ghosts of my past are everywhere in Akros. Angry, bitter shades who would never let me rest here, even if that was my deepest desire. Asleep? How the fuck can he still be asleep? Ariston, where are you, you lousy, rat-bitten excuse for a seawolf? What did you just call me? <sighs> Ariston yawned opening one eye to stare up at the young Varkas captain who towered over his bunk, a look of disbelief on his handsome face. The next moment, he found a cold, wet nose poking at him inquisitively, blowing plumes of hot breath into his sleep-creased face. Daya, go away, he groaned. She stinks, Luca. Don't you ever wash that thing? Course I do, Luca said indignantly, reaching for his windhound's collar and pulling her back beside him, a gesture she fought vigorously, both front legs pawing at the air. She bathes whenever I do. Bathe more, Ariston said, closing his eyes. And get the fuck out so I can go back to sleep. Luca took his hand off the dog's collar and she leapt back toward the half-asleep human, jumping up to rest her paws on the edge of the bunk and burying her nose deep into the crevice between Ariston's neck and his bed. By the gods! Ariston roared, bolting upright so quickly that he nearly hit his head. Get the dog off me! Daya darted away and went to hide behind her master, ducking her head around his legs to give the loud human a disapproving look. The last time she had smelled him, there had been delicious raw meat and not so many loud noises. You scared her, 
Lucas said. She just wanted you to scratch behind her ears. And I wanted to sleep. But since my dreams have all died, what the fuck are you doing here, Luca? You're kidding, right? The whole fleet is here, as ordered. What are you talking about? Ariston had dragged himself out of his bunk and was reaching for a nearby jug to dump water over his unruly dark hair. The funeral rites of Kyrian, said Luca. Ezrion sent word three days ago, calling the fleet to meet at Akros. Ariston glanced at the jug in his hand for a half a second, then threw it full force against the ship's hull. Luca winced at the crash as the clay fragments bounced off the wooden boards and Daya whimpered behind him. I guess my invitation got lost. If Ezrian bothered to send one at all, Ariston said with a cynical smile. Then what brought you to Akros? Luca asked. A girl, said Ariston shortly. Luca laughed. You? Chasing a girl? I'll believe it when I see it. Ariston shook his head. She bought passage out of one of the northwest ports, paid me twice what it was worth, even with guest rights, so I didn't ask questions. He paused. But since I'm here, it would be rude of me not to go pay my respects to the commander of our fleet, don't you think? Where is my uncle's ship? Very center of the harbor. Don't do anything stupid, please, Luca begged. You want me to come with you? Thanks, but no, I can handle the old bastard well enough on my own. You might as well stay for the funeral feasting, then, Luca coaxed, since you're already here. Not a chance in hell. I'll tell Simon to get rid of everything we can in the market today, and then we'll be gone with the next good tide, Ariston said. Well, suit yourself, Luca shrugged. I will say, the famous Akros market does not disappoint. I've seen some things out there in the afternoon sun that no one would dare display freely anywhere else in the Four Seas. They always say you can buy anything you want in Akros, as long as the price is right. You've been east, I hear, Ariston said, changing the subject. How was the trip? Luca grinned. The beaches were as beautiful as the women, and the women were as fresh and ripe as the fruit. I almost didn't come back. He scratched the back of Daya's head. You sure you won't stay for the feast? My Tira bed girls are reported to be beyond compare. That seems like reason enough to stay for a night or three. Ariston snorted. Three seasons a captain, and you're still steering your ship with your cock. Luca laughed good-naturedly. It's my most sensitive instrument. It hasn't steered me wrong yet, he said. Good luck with Ezrion. I'll come by afterwards to hear how it went. They're saying the rites won't start until sunset. He whistled for Daya, who thumped her tail happily and jumped up to follow her master back to the deck, pausing for one last hopeful glance back at Ariston. Maybe the nice-smelling man would have meat next time. You never really knew with humans. Ariston poked his toe at the damp clay fragments near his bare foot. It had been stupid to break the jar, undisciplined. He would not let his uncle see him lose control like that, no matter what was said. Such behavior was unacceptable for a future commander, and he would command the Varkas fleet someday. His mother said she had seen it in the stars, and he believed her, even if everyone else thought she was mad. He threw on his cleanest cloak and went to look for Ezrion. If you won't let me pass, then go tell your commander that he has a visitor. 
I'll wait, Ariston told the ugly, burly, dark-haired man who was blocking the gangway that led to the deck of his uncle's ship. And who were you supposed to be? The guard sneered. His nephew, Ariston said patiently. His favorite nephew, in fact. My only nephew. Let him pass, Maidan. The commander of the Varkas fleet stared at Ariston, a hint of displeasure in his eyes. What the fuck are you doing here? Funny thing, Ezrion, I wanted to ask you the same question. That message to meet the fleet in Akros must have gotten lost along the way. Ezrion grunted something unintelligible in reply and motioned for the younger man to follow him to a shaded platform near the boat's stern. Wine, he barked at a nearby servant boy who scurried away to fetch two cups. So what particular reason could you have for summoning the whole fucking fleet this far south at the very end of the sailing season? Ariston asked as he took his seat. Don't you speak to me like that, boy. Show some respect for your betters. Ezrion reached out to cuff him, but Ariston dodged the blow. I should have you thrown overboard for bait, the older man growled. Kyrian Varkas is dead, and though he was a younger son of a lesser ship by our reckoning, the people of Akros called him king for some thirty years. To disregard his passing would be to risk the anger of the gods. Ezrion was getting sentimental in his old age, Ariston thought, softening of the brain. Then again, he always had been a superstitious old fool, obsessing over omens and rituals. The older and more obscure, the better. His father, Adan, had never put much faith in such things, nor his father before him. Fucking waste of time, Ariston muttered. That shows exactly how little you know of politics, boy, Ezrion retorted. I want to see for myself who will be taking Kyrian's seat now that the old wolf is dead. That may affect the fortunes of us all, for better or for worse. Ariston flushed and took a long drink from his cup to hide the frown on his face. When he lowered his cup, he found that Ezrian was staring at him with a hard look in his eyes. And what is it that brought you to Akros, nephew? The younger man shrugged. The gods in the wind, uncle. What else brings us anywhere? He gestured over his shoulder toward the eastern docks where his own ship was anchored. But it's been made clear that I'm not wanted here. I'll be gone with the next good tide, not that it's any concern of yours. Ezrion laid a heavy, hairy-knuckled hand on the shoulder of the young man beside him. Peace, nephew. Let there be no ill will between us. Join me and the other Varkas lords at sunset for Kyrian's funeral feast. It is only right that you stand beside me as my brother's son. Ariston shook his head. I have no taste for feasting and foreign politicking. The setting would not suit me, especially since I was never invited in the first place. He rose to his feet and Ezrion stood as well, broadening his shoulders in anger. To his great embarrassment, Ariston found himself bracing for a blow, but Ezrion merely shrugged. Suit yourself, nephew. I'll not waste words arguing with an arrogant fool. Recalling the broken jug and holding his temper only with great difficulty, Ariston nodded, then turned and made his way down the docks back toward his ship. It was strange to find that his nephew had arrived in Akros before him, Ezrian thought as he watched the dark-haired young captain walk away along the water. His elder brother's boy was come of age, a man as tall as himself, 
and nearing the prime of his strength, the Varkas commander realized with a frown. Soon, Ariston would be demanding to know what his future held. It was not a conversation Ezrian wanted to have, and so he had decided in a moment of weakness not to summon the boy to Akros. It had clearly been a tactical mistake, not sending word to Ariston's ship. He pushed the irritating thought out of his head. It was not worth worrying over, not when there was so much more at stake. Ezrian looked up toward the atria, its smooth masonry walls gleaming in the afternoon sun. Many seasons had passed since his last voyage to Akros. Once, he and Kyrian had been the best of friends. But as the years wore on and Kyrian's port city grew in fame and wealth, the Varkas commander found less and less of a welcome in his friend's halls. He is ashamed of me, Ezrian had realized finally, the thought settling into the pit of his stomach like a stone. The sea wolf he had known as a boy was gone and a lord of rock and grass sat in his place. Ezrian swore not to return. And yet, as soon as he heard that his old friend had died, he summoned his captains and set his sails for Akros. No matter what had passed between them, a king who was once a sea wolf was dead. It was the Varkas way. Now, Kyrian's corrupt, cosmopolitan city lay kingless. It took an iron will a sense of humor, and a lack of scruples to keep a place like Akros in check, Ezrian knew. To control the port of Akros was to control the vast majority of the commerce of the Southern Sea. No small thing by any man's measure. Sometimes, Ezrian wondered how different his life might have been if his fate and Kyrian's had been switched, and he had become Lord of Akros instead of his friend. He certainly wouldn't have been stupid enough to anger the Mytiras by taking their prettiest priestess. Now that was a tale that had ended as badly as it began, Ezrian reflected, seeing as the girl went mad and drowned herself not ten years later. The high houses had never forgiven Kyrian for it, and no woman, no matter how pretty, was worth two decades of resentment. Ezrian had never met Kyrian's second wife, the Lady Chrysa Elian, but he had heard that she was pure-blood Mitera in every vein and sinew, and that told him everything he needed to know, he thought with a frown. The world was changing, and not for the better. The lords of Nassos and Mikine were reported to be at each other's throats. Strange storms were making voyages westward more dangerous. The old regime that had kept peace along the eastern shores all these years was beginning to fracture. The dead emperor's sons were making trouble, squabbling over the division of their father's power. There had never been many ports as friendly to the Varkas fleet as Akros, and none that offered the security of its rock-ringed harbor. Kyrian, you selfish old bastard, what a time you chose to die, Ezrian thought. He looked up at the gulls wheeling overhead. The sun was bright, but the day was cool, and the nights were getting longer. Not long now, and the Varkas fleet would need to be making its way back to their stone houses in the far west before the winter storms gathered. Still, there was enough time for one last feast, time to eat and drink their fill, and then load their black ships before old Boreas began to blow from the north. You're too stubborn for your own fucking good, Ariston. A young giant of a Varkas sailor was standing on the deck of the Black Sea Runner, hands on his hips, 
and for the moment, he seemed to be getting the better of the argument with his dark-haired captain. You'll starve yourself in spite rather than accept any kindness you haven't earned, and it's noble of you, my lord, but some of us poor sailors are hungry. Ariston laughed and threw a length of cord onto the deck. <laughs> Go to the feast then, poor sailor Simon, and I hope for your sake that the wine isn't poisoned. The Mytiras hate us, ever since they say our kinsmen stole their priestess. Or have you forgotten the tale of how Kyrian came to rule Akros? Simon ran his hand over his braided brown locks and shrugged. I'm hungry and thirsty, and I haven't slept with a remotely pretty boy or girl in months. Ancient history shouldn't get in the way of a modern man's needs. I told you to go to the feast. Enjoy your food and your wine and your pretty boy, Ariston said. But in the meantime, the rest of those jars of resin aren't going to move themselves to the dock. Born five winners before me, and he thinks he's an ancient mariner, Simon grumbled under his breath as he raised himself to his full and considerable height, stretching his long arms overhead. Just then, Luca strolled down the dock, his lanky windhound trailing his steps. Ariston, Simon, how goes it? he called. You change your mind yet about the feast? Simon let out a loud theatrical groan. Ugh! You try to reason with him, he called. I'm going up to the market to see if I can find a buyer for this terebinth resin before I haul it up there for no good reason. Ariston hopped over the side of his ship onto the stone causeway to greet his friend. You saw Ezrian, I guess. How was it? Luca asked. Buy me a drink and I'll tell you all about it, Ariston said. I don't see any new bruises, so at least he didn't punch you this time, said Luca tilting his head to one side. Did you punch him? No, but he had a crazy look in his eye that I didn't much care for. I'm thinking it would be best to put some distance between myself and my uncle as soon as possible. I guess you won't be coming home for the winter again? Luca ventured. Ariston shook his head. Keep an eye on my mother for me if you can. If she asks about me, tell her I'm well. Luca looked away uncomfortably. It had been many winters since Ariston's mother last remembered that she ever had a son at all. He understood full well why his best friend so rarely made the trip west to his birthplace. But he wondered if Ariston knew just how sick and strange his mother had become. The Lady Caris had always been a little mad, ever since her husband Adon had drowned and she herself had spent days drifting along the coastline of the Acratenaron Peninsula alone except for the unborn child inside her. The Varkas had called it a miracle when she had been found alive in those accursed waters, an even greater miracle when her son had arrived early but healthy, born in the same winter as Luca, son of Fabian. The three men had been inseparable since birth. Luca, son of Fabian, was known throughout the Varkas fleet for his handsome face and quick wit. Simon was the tallest and strongest of his friends for his mother was a woman from the far north, and it was said that he was part giant on her side. But Ariston, son of the Varkas commander Aiden, had the quickest temper and the strongest will. He had grown up to be as stern and strong as his father, and he carried himself like a man born to lead. His men loved him, because he seemed blind to the differences between them, sharing their bunk and board and hardships as if they were brothers. 
as if he did not remember that his rightful place was on the first ship of their fleet. But he did remember, and it was his memory, with all its sharp-toothed resentment and bitterness, which now gnawed at Ariston as he walked along the eastern edge of the Akros Harbor beside his friend. Well, it doesn't leave much to the imagination, does it? Brielle asked, studying the curves of her figure once Yana had tied and belted the silk dress. She paused. And my back? Nothing to see, Yana assured her. Brielle nodded. We should leave the rest of my hair down over my shoulders just in case. She glanced at the various ornaments that still lay scattered on the bed where they had fallen from Yana's hastily wrapped package. Brielle reached out and laid a finger on a gold armband, delicately wrought with a design of lilies waving in the wind. It had been a gift from her mother. To wear when you are grown, the Lady Zandra had said. Am I grown, mother? Brielle asked silently, picking up the circlet. Even if I am, I do not think you would love me more now than you did when I was a child. I was always too wild and proud and fierce. Too much like the man you never loved. The time flies, Brielle, Yana said. We should go soon. You know, I've always hated these sandals. Brielle forced out a laugh as she reached for the dark leather shoes. I'm not used to my Tira fashion. I'm going to freeze dressed like this. Sandals fastened, she stood up. Well, how do I look? Like a true-born daughter of the Mytiris? She asked sarcastically. Yes. Yana insisted, you look like a daughter of Athena. By the gods, I fucking hope not, Brielle retorted. Now hand me my cloak. I suppose I can't put this off any longer. <laughs>